0: As the car tumbles and shakes down the road, Chris Howarth and Noah Hawkins are both confused. The two were just at a bonfire night party near Inverness when suddenly they were grabbed and bundled into a car. They might have thought it was a rival drug gang or it could have been the police that grabbed them. But in reality, it turned out to be the other two members of Julian Chisholm's gang, Ian Ray and David Forrest. But instead of making sense of the situation, it just seemed to add more questions. Ian Ray and David Forrest don't give them too many answers, only that they are to get on a plane to Spain where they'll meet Julian Chisholm. Graham Dick, the customs officer in charge of Operation Klondike, was quickly on their tail.
1: What happened was that basically they started to get their act together, which they couldn't do before. And uh, Ian Ray and David Forrest drove up from Dundee and dragged them out. Um, and then picked him out and then drove him straight down to Edinburgh. And they were on a plane before they knew what had hit them, and uh, they were going to Spain. We had a surveillance team at the airport. We saw Julian pick up uh, Chris and Noel, and they left the airport, and we immediately lost them. The Spanish police lost them, and we didn't have a clue where they were.
0: The Spanish police lose Howarth and Hawkins, and from there on out, Graham was in the dark. They don't see the two men until over a month later When they suddenly appear back in Scotland, back in the fishing village of Ullapool, overjoyed and with suntans, Graham realised then and there that the two had already pulled off their big score. We wanted to find out what happened in that month-long gap in this story. There are only a few people who know exactly what happened to Chris Howarth and Noel Hawkins after they went missing. Chris Howarth was one of them, but he wouldn't publicly speak about his story until 2002 when he met a journalist named Eugene Costello
2: during a paragliding event of all places. There were a group of people there and one of them was a tall chap. He was wearing uh, jeans and a sort of khaki jacket. Um, He looked a little bit rough and ready. And I got chatting to him and went for a beer afterwards. And he said, so you're a journalist? And I said, I am. And he said, well, I might have a story for you.
0: So Eugene sits down with Chris Howarth with the hopes of writing a book about Mr. X. Howarth described to Eugene what happened after the bonfire night, how he ended up on board a ship full of international criminals travelling across the ocean, and how the whole experience almost got Howarth killed. I'm investigative journalist Brendan Duggan, and from The Courier and The Press and Journal, this is Hunting Mr. X the true story behind the biggest drugs importation in Scottish history, and the man who masterminded it all, Julian Chisholm. Episode three, The Storm. Howarth and Hawkins arrive in Spain and meet Julian Chisholm, who tells them to head to the Costa del Sol and wait in a hotel called the Pension Armando Hotel. Whilst writing his book, Eugene Costello visited the Costa del Sol. Even today, the Southern Strip in Spain is known as a hub for international criminals.
2: Yes, well, I mean, there's no secret that the Costa del Sol is the hiding ground for a lot of criminals on the run. You know, it comes up in the press every week that another uh, gangster has been caught and arrested in, the Costa del Sol.
0: As Howarth and Hawkins wait for their next instructions, it's no surprise that they feel a bit out of the loop. First there was the car pulling up to the bonfire night. Then there was all this waiting on the Costa del Sol, with no more information about what the score actually is. The whole thing felt very cloak and dagger. And that's exactly how Chisholm liked it.
2: I was recently interviewing another drug smuggler who told me that one of the best lessons he ever learned was never let A know what B is doing or that C even exists so that you silo all information. People only know what bit of the operation they're responsible for. And the idea is you don't let anybody know the overall master plan because that leads to the risk of exposure.
0: The information Howarth and Hawkins do get is how much they're going to be paid. Chisholm tells Howarth and Hawkins this isn't going to be like their typical cannabis run, but that Howarth will be paid £150,000 and Hawkins, 75000 In Eugene Costello's book, Howarth is quoted, saying whilst he didn't know what the job was exactly going to be, he knew, just by the money, that it was going to be big. Back at the Pension Armando Hotel, after two days of waiting, Chisholm arranges Howarth and Hawkins to be driven down to Gibraltar, where they were told to sit and, you guessed it, wait some more. Howarth took Eugene to where he was told to wait over a decade later, near a place called Casemate Square, near the harbor.
2: So he took me to the point where he had been told to wait, which was down in a dark corner of the harbor. Um, and what he told me was that suddenly, quite late at night, a, a boat silently approached and a figure propped his head up and said, get in the boat. So they jumped in this launch and they were taken out to a tanker that was moored out, outside of the harbor.
0: The tanker Eugene is talking about was a large boat called the DMRB.
2: The DMRB was a relatively large tanker, which would have ordinarily be used, I suppose, for uh, fruit and produce, that kind of thing.
0: Howarth and Hawkins arrive on the DMRB and meet the crew. Julian Chisholm, of course, is nowhere to be seen. He would never get this close to the action and was instead many miles away on land. Instead. Chisholm had hired someone else to captain the operation, a man named Francisco José Bu The
2: captain was a chap from Galicia, and in Galicia uh, there is a sort of tradition of smuggling and piracy and that kind of thing.
0: Howarth and Hawkins go into the ship's control room and find the navigational equipment, pointing them towards South America, not Africa like they had thought. As the ship takes off, they are finally told the plan. The plan is not to pick up cannabis, but 500 kilograms of Colombian cocaine from the infamous Calais Cartel. The Calais Cartel. This Colombian cartel were one of the biggest names in the exportation of cocaine to the rest of the world. They had already become the dominant force in the US and in the 1970s, they were being credited for popularizing cocaine in major European cities. By the time they were dealing with Chisholm, they weren't even at the height of their power. That would come in the next few years when they would own 80% of the world's cocaine market at the height of their multi-billion pound drug trafficking network. They feared nobody. Not politicians, not police. So what was Chisholm doing partnering up with the Calais cartel? I asked investigative journalist Dale Haslam. So how, how did he become involved with the Cali cartel? What was his
3: strategy there? To this day, nobody's ever really been able to find out how Chisholm forged links with the South Americans. It's fair to say that it's very much in his character to be always ambitious, to be looking at the, you know, I'm at this r- wrong common ladder. How can I climb to the next one? And then he's achieved that. He's done well for himself. And a lot of people would say, oh, I've done well for myself. I'll stick here. But always was Chisholm, always on the lookout for the next runk on the ladder. So we don't know how he forged that link, very much in his character. For Chisholm to link up with the Cali cartel was a
0: huge step from smuggling cannabis into Ulapu. He was now going to be smuggling 500 kilograms of cocaine into Scotland, upgrading
3: the risk, but also its reward. I mean, we're talking 100 million pounds worth of cocaine, the biggest ever drugs run into Scotland in history. Nobody had ever attempted this, It's, It's bold. Chisholm's ambition was very much driven by greed, not naivety, but by seeing the people above him in these social circles and thinking, I want a piece of that. And that's why he was always so bold. In, in risking it and in, in moving to the next step.
0: Back on the DMRB, which is now on its way to South America, Howarth and Hawkins get to know their new crewmates, but they're in for another surprise, courtesy of Julian Chisholm. They learn that Chisholm, in his desire to move up in the drugs world, has hired Francisco Torres, who isn't just a drug smuggler, but a supporter and member of ETA, a Basque-based
3: terrorist group. Torres would say all these these boats around the world, and he would he would do deals with whichever gangsters uh offered to pay him money he was he was very much a mercenary operator. It's possible that Torres forged some kind of link with uh with Chisholm, and then he introduced him to the Cali cartel and said, "We can help move their shipment to your to your market and let's do it. It's possible that that happened. We don't know for sure, but we think that's what happened."
0: It's safe to say Howarth felt out of his depth. He exclaimed as much to Eugene.
2: Well, it didn't sound like he particularly enjoyed it. He didn't particularly like anyone, and they didn't particularly like him, is the impression I got.
0: Howarth had a tough time on the DMRB. He clashed with other crewmates and the captain, Francisco Torres. One day during the voyage, Torres invited Howarth into the captain's quarters for a
2: talk. And tried to have a talk with him to say, you know, you've got to calm down. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think he was a problematic passenger.
0: But this wasn't going to be a friendly
3: chat. Francisco Torres was a very, very mercenary. Money was the bottom line for him. And he would do anything and hurt anybody if it meant achieving that. In, in a very, very sinister moment, Torres welcomed Chris into the captain's hall and he showed him some things, he showed him some uh, uh, Nazi memorabilia that he said that the cartel had given him, some some plates. He showed him some, uh, some guns as well, some semi-automatic weapons. And then um, he took one of the guns and walked Chris to the side of the boat. This was very amicable, I think at the time they were drinking whiskey and having a, a good time, very comfortable with each other. But then... Torres said something that was very uncomfortable, very sinister. He said to Chris, you know, when we're not moving drugs, we move people, asylum seekers from Asia, North Africa to Europe, but they don't ever get there. And then he did a motion with his gun pointing overboard into the sea, shooting motion. And the implication was very clear. What what, uh, Torres was saying to, to Howarth was, I don't think anything of shooting people they were alluding to throwing asylum seekers overboard watching them drown and shooting them in the head torres said this very proudly very matter-of-factly he didn't value human life he valued money and he valued the ETA cause and his family and that was it and he was sending a message to how on that day that i'm the boss of the ship and whatever i say goes and if you don't abide by it this is what might happen to you Torres
0: was linked to a very dangerous group. Howarth was stuck on a boat with them in the middle of the ocean. He had nowhere to run if things turned ugly. Finally, in December, the crew arrive at their destination. The DMRB stops off the coast of Venezuela. Howarth described to Eugene what happened
2: next. They weighed anchor um, at sea off the coast of Venezuela and a couple of planes flew out
0: The light aircrafts were operated by the Calais cartel. The planes dropped 16 bales of cocaine into the sea, each about the size of a suitcase and each worth about six million pounds.
2: And they pushed these bales of cocaine out of the side of the plane into the water where they fished them out with long hooks.
0: Calais cartel packaged all their cocaine in Gucci bags as a symbol of its quality. Another practical joke they had was how they put pictures of the Colombian president Virgilio Barco on all their packages. President Virgilio Barco had just declared war on the Cali Cartel, and this was a way of mocking him. So Howarth and Hawkins were now on a boat with over 100 million pounds worth of cocaine, and it was all heading back to Scotland. On their way back to Scotland, if they ran into some trouble, such as police, the boat was actually installed with a failsafe Here's Eugene Costello.
2: And they'd set up a sort of ingenious contraption on the ship, which is they had two rails at an angle sloping down to the edge of the boat and a trolley on the rails that was tied to the mast and they put all the bells of cocaine on there and, the, and they had a little gate at the end. So the idea being that if they did get caught they could open the gate and somebody would just cut the rope with a machete and the trolley would bundle down the rails and drop to the bottom of the sea.
3: Whilst they are on their voyage, what is Julian Chisholm doing? At the time, Julian Chisholm was actually in Spain. He was uh, lying low. He'd never get his hands dirty. He would never be on the front line. He was the man that moved his chess pieces around the board, but he would never be on that board himself he knew that if things all went south and the gang got caught there was nothing linking them to him so while all this was going on while they were doing the dirty work he was many miles away after the spanish police lost howarth and hawkins
0: graham did all he could to catch up he had his team keep eyes on the two boats they knew Chisholm used for his drug runs the eastray and the Shearwake expecting Howarth and Hawkins to arrive.
1: We expected they would turn up at one of them, and they didn't. And they just disappeared, and we had no idea. We were doing everything. We were trying to identify every yacht that we could find. And we didn't find anything suspicious. And we we didn't know where they were. We had nothing at all to go on.
0: But of course, we know now that Graham was looking in all the wrong places. For the first time, Chisholm was actually a step ahead of them. And Graham wouldn't realise his mistake before he was too late.
1: We thought that Chris and Noel were on a vessel coming back to Scotland. We had no doubt. The problem was that we thought that that vessel was coming from the Mediterranean area rather than from across the Atlantic.
0: But he was keeping an eye on the transportation team, which was Ian Ray and David Forrest.
1: But we still didn't know where um, uh, Chris Haworth and Noel Hawkins were. So we knew it was coming together. We knew they were getting ready. We knew that the landside transport people, Ian, Ray and Davy Forrest, were starting to get their act together.
0: He knew they would be the final step in Chisholm's operation, the ones who transported the drugs. So for now, if Graham couldn't find Noel Hawkins and Chris Howarth, he would keep his eyes on Ian Ray and David Forrest. It's just before christmas 1990 in the middle of a scottish winter the dmrb sails into irish waters it moves through the minch and close to clashnessy bay near drumbeg north of ullipool the weather is atrocious there's heavy snow and a storm is brewing chisholm makes radio contact with the dmrb only to find out that there's another problem between howarth and torres Torres was refusing to get any closer to Scotland. Instead, he and his crew were going to packet the cocaine onto an inflatable boat for Howarth and Hawkins to make their own way through the storm. Howarth was not a fan of this idea. He talks to Chisholm on the ship to shore radio. He asks if he can get out of the run, but Chisholm says no. During their call, Chisholm tells Howarth not to worry, that he is keeping a close eye on Howarth's family and children. Howarth took this as a threat. And then, like offloading dead weight, the two were cast out to fend for themselves, along with 100 million pounds worth of cocaine. Howarth and Hawkins tried to make their way back to Ullapo. If they can just get past the reef along Ullapool, they would have a better chance of making it. The sheer force of the waves threw the boat up into the air. Then, their motor ceases in the middle of the ocean. A tailing rope from the DMRB is caught in the propellers, tangling it up. The two men have to reach into the water, holding on against the crashing waves to untangle the rope. At any point, the water could choose to grab one of them and pull them in, or grab some of their cargo for itself. Finally, using a knife, they manage to cut the rope away. the cover of darkness, two men on an inflatable boat, Howarth and Hawkins, dock on a beach at Clashnessy Bay. They hide the cocaine under some rocks and flee. It's a miracle they survived, but Howarth and Hawkins have just now pulled off the biggest score of their lives. the same day the two return home, Graham received some intel that Howarth and Hawkins are back. Since they had no records of Howarth and Hawkins flying into the country, they knew that their return was a sign that something had happened. Graham had to find out what and fast, because all Chisholm needed to do now was get his drugs out of Ullapu. Coming up on the next episode of Hunting Mr. Eggs.
1: And we put checkpoints on every road leaving the northwest of Scotland. People were absolutely aghast.
0: And I think that's why the sentence was so high, to warn people, you can't just come into Scotland and do this sort of thing.
1: There were people going to, um, had been hired by the Colombian cartels to, to kill Torres.
0: Hunting Mr. X is a DC Thompson production from the titles of The Courier and Press and Journal. You can listen to the whole series on all your major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the series so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a review? And for more Mr. X content, you can log on to The Courier and The Press and Journal. And for more Mr. X content, you can log on to The Courier or The Press and Journal. Hunting Mr. X is presented and co-produced by me, Brendan Duggan. Original reporting by Dale Haslam and co-produced by Morvan McIntyre.